In therapy, radically genuine is reached when one is being truly authentic, communicating freely and openly as equals. The Radically Genuine podcast strives to do just that. We will question areas of mental health, culture, societal norms, and what is truly needed to improve the lives of others. Dr. Roger McFillin is a clinical psychologist and board certified in behavioral and cognitive psychology. He is the executive director of the Center for Integrated Behavioral Health in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. We are each unique. Understanding your specific genetic profile may one day drive personalized medicine. In 2011, a study was published showing the relationship of a genetic variant that impacts the safety and effectiveness of many commonly prescribed drugs. On today's podcast, we welcome the co-author of that study, Christopher Crotty, and a subject from the study, David Carmichael, for a radically genuine conversation. Welcome to the Radically Genuine Podcast. You can check us out on new social media. We are on Instagram now, at RadGenPod. We're also on TikTok, at RadGenPod. And you can always follow me, at Dr. McPhillin on Twitter. And if you want to reach out via email, RadGenPodcast at gmail.com. Fellas, we had a difficult podcast not too long ago where we were talking about mass shootings. Yep. Yeah. And one of the uh, questions that we really did have was the role of psychiatric drugs uh, that could potentially play a role in inducing homicidal or suicidal acts. And over the course of decade here at our practice, we've done a lot of research into some of the, the side effects and withdrawal effects and negative responses to various psychiatric drugs. And in my research at that time, I came across what I thought was seminal paper, um, antidepressant-induced akathisia-related homicides associated with diminishing mutations and metabolizing genes of the CYP450 family. Uh, Yolande, Lucier, Christopher Crotty were the two co-authors of this paper. And we included this in kind of some summary work that we provide patients here at our practice for in informed consent. And as we went through another school shooting here in the United States, and we continue to see an increase in mass shootings, what I always thought was concerning was that there was the absence of this critical discussion uh, on the national media and on the worldwide stage. And for a group that really supports informed consent, and uh, making sure that all patients can make an informed decision with any drug that they take. This is of, of high ethical concern for me as a clinical psychologist. Well, we're lucky enough to have a uh, co-author of this paper, and it's back from 2011, uh, Pharmacogenomics and Personalized Medicine, uh, back in July of 2011. Uh, Christopher Crotty, we want to welcome to the program right now. Christopher, thank you for joining the Radically Genuine podcast. Well, thank, thank you very much for the invitation. Uh, it's an honor to be with you on the podcast and to, uh, to be with your audience. Chris, can you tell us a little, a little bit about your background first before we get into the paper? I just want to know who you are and uh, what got you into this type of work. Okay. Um, 
I uh, finished a PhD in cell and molecular biology at McGill University in Montreal in 2002, and uh, subsequently went to the University of York in England and worked on a drug discovery project. So I was getting into pharmacology um, uh, after my PhD. And uh, following the postdoc, uh, I had an offer to work for a startup biotech firm in the pharmacogenetic space that was based in Montreal. And uh, I, I took up uh, that offer, moved back to Montreal, and I worked from 2002 to 2005, uh, let's see, no, sorry, 2005 to 2009, uh, worked with this company, Pharmacogenetics, uh, it was called Signature Genetics, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and uh, we provided uh, a service to uh, inform drug selection and dosing decisions that were based on a genetic test. And the idea at that time uh, was it was a bit novel uh, uh, because a genetic, you know, the, the human genome project, human genome sequencing was completed, I believe, around 2001. And from that was supposed to be, uh, you know, the wellspring for uh, personalized medicine, precision medicine based on your genes uh, to inform diagnosis, treatment, uh, your risk for certain cancers, uh, all, all of that stuff. So that was uh, the promise of personalized medicine back in, back in 2005. And, uh, uh, and so I, I don't want to go on to, uh, uh, endlessly about this, but there were two main, um, two main authoritative figures at the time that provided uh, some quotes. And I'm just going to quote here very quickly. Dr. Francis Collins, the former head of the NIH, was quoted in 2001 uh, to say that genetic testing would be used to tailor medicines to fit individual genetic profiles, since drugs that are effective in some people are less effective in others, and in some cases cause severe side effects. So that's Dr. Francis Collins, who just retired recently from the NIH. Uh, just maybe a couple of years after that, in 2003, uh, Dr. Alan Roses, who at the time was a senior vice president of genetics at GlaxoSmithKline, stated in December 2003, the vast majority of drugs, more than 90%, only work in 30 or 50% of the people. Goes on to say, I wouldn't say that most drugs don't work. Drugs out there on the market work, but they don't work in, anybody, uh, in everybody. Mm -hmm. So that was a bit of a stunning admission right from a senior pharma executive um, but that you know we at the company at signature genetics we took those words uh to be signs of encouragement that there would be you know uh, more openness to to use genetic testing uh, to improve drug safety and drug efficacy so um i guess we were all a bit naive <laughs> looking back uh, looking back now, but um, uh, it, the, the, the idea was that there were many, many preventable adverse drug reactions. There was one paper in 1998 that uh, estimated uh, two million, over 2 million adverse drug reactions a year in the U.S. and 100,000 deaths uh, that they estimated from, from adverse drug reactions. 
as the fourth leading cause of death. Uh, that was from uh, Jason Lazarou at the University of Toronto. And there was other uh, research, uh, among others, one by uh, Catherine Phillips in 2001 at the University of California that showed a majority of the drugs cited in adverse drug reaction studies, uh, half were metabolized by phase one enzymes of which 90% are cytochrome P450s, which is the, the gene that uh, was the basis for a, a paper by Dr. Uh, Lucier and I, and that was the basis of uh, the work that we did with uh, uh, signature uh, genetics. So um, the, back, the background was that we were uh, we were we were providing a test. Uh, we were providing a, a interpretation of genetic test results, among others with antipsychotics and antidepressants. Uh, and we had uh, we were working with uh, LabCorp and MedicAlert in the U.S. and Lab21 in the U.K. And uh, we thought things were going quite well. At uh, Roche uh, provided a platform for cytochrome P450 gene testing that was FDA approved in 2005. And that was the lab test that identified the mutations in the genes. Uh, they, they didn't provide the genetic testing interpretation. That was a field where our company uh, came in, signature uh, genetics. Uh, but the fact that uh, the cytochrome P450 gene testing platform was given FDA approval, uh, it gave a bit more credibility and we were trying to leverage uh, that credibility to uh, to promote our to promote our service. Uh, I can go into detail later on some of the roadblocks that uh, that, that came up. But one in particular that came up uh, was that we were uh, hit with a warning letter by the FDA in 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 2006. We responded, and then in 2007 uh, they they sent us they sent us a warning letter. Uh, you know, threatening, oh gosh, among uh, other things, uh, seizure, seizure, injunction, and or civil money penalties if we were, if we did not work with them to enter into compliance. Uh, so the, the, there was at the time, and the FDA is still not these days not, not, not crazy about direct consumer genetic testing. Okay, let me stop you right there because I have a question. All right, so if, I, if I'm hearing you correctly, we're learning from a personalized medicine perspective that there, there are tests that can be done that can inform patients that they are at risk for an adverse drug reaction. Correct? Yes. Okay. And you were part of a group that was put together that was going to be bringing this to, to market to be able to test for these metabolizing genes, ones that could provide an adverse effect, but it got stopped or thwarted by, in the United States by the FDA. Correct. Why? Why did that happen? Uh, um, well, that's, that's the million-dollar question. Uh, that's the million-dollar question. The, the FDA, uh, they have, they are an, uh, the regulatory entity that regulates devices that are involved in the diagnosis, uh, mitigation, and cure of disease. So that was the rationale that they used to, uh, 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 to force us into compliance with their, with their service. 
there was a there's a fine line to walk with a kind of a genetic testing service uh, interpretation service like this, in the sense that doctors want direction. The, the doctors only have two minutes, and they want uh, they want an answer. They're they're look. It, it, it's the same. I spent five years in Australia with uh, uh, not genetic testing, but with you know pathology testing, and a GP only has two minutes. They look at the test result and they say, what do I do? They have to understand what they have to do next. And we were interpreting the information that we were getting from the peer reviewed literature. So, you know, for example, we would take a drug like, I don't know, clozapine, and we would look for all of the articles that uh, informed on what would happen uh, to uh, what would happen to the levels therapeutic uh, le uh, you know, levels of the drug uh, based on genetic mutations. And a lot of that work was had been done by, even by 2005. Uh, the patterns that we picked out from 2005, they still hold up today. Mm -hmm. They've been extended to other drugs. But uh, we, were, we were walking a fine line. To, we, could, we could not provide medical advice. We were an educational service. Um, and, but the FDA would still interpret our service as, um, affecting, uh, the diagnosis, mitigation, or treatment of the disease. And as such, we were subject to their regulation. Okay. So are there any questions about this science right now? Do we know clearly that there are certain, um, mutations and ma metabolizing genes of, for example, the CYP450 family, that would we know this for certain that it would cre create severe adverse drug reactions, potentially deadly ones. Okay, that's that's where um, yeah you have to hold hold back a bit, um, you know from from uh, it's the difference between a probabilistic determination and a deterministic determination the genes are in elevate you know if you have if you have mutations uh, that impair your metabolism of a given drug uh, then your your blood levels will uh, likely rise if you're given standard dose so uh, what you know the, the idea is you'd have to lower the dose uh, if you want the same drug levels that provide a therapeutic effect because the person has genetic mutations that much is is known, but the thing is, there are other. Uh, it's not. It's not. It's. Hmm, how can I put this? One gene will definitely have an effect on the metabolism of a drug, but uh, the cytochrome P450 network of genes is sort of meant as a filter. So if one is impaired, uh, the others can possibly kick in. Uh, once once the drug level goes up to a certain level, a, a, a more secondary gene sort of becomes more important, and and so on and so on. It's a it's a it's a network. So uh, that makes it sound very fuzzy and, and not very useful. I understand. No, hey hey Chris, uh, this is this is Sean. I'm gonna I, for um, for many of us that uh, are not in the medical field. I'm going to take a step back. And just for our listeners, I'm going to say 
from what I was able to dig in because I wanted to learn about this is that the uh, the cytochrome uh, P450 is one of the um, the CYP the CYP super gene family that consists of 57 genes. And 12 of the encoded enzymes are responsible for more than 75% of all phase one drug oxidation reaction. So when you did your study, you identified that that CYP450, um, if there is any type of polymorphism, um, it can result in altered metabolic activity. So a polymorphism, can you explain to, to some of us lay people what that is? Okay. Uh, so, yeah, there's a lot of cytochrome P450 genes. Um, some of them are more important. Mm -hmm. So uh, our service uh, looked, and, and the paper that uh, Yola and I wrote, uh, we looked at three genes, and three genes are very important. You'll, get a, you'll catch a lot of uh, uh, problems with the three genes. The three genes are CYP2D6, uh, CYP2C9, and CYP2C19. Um, there are others, CYP3A4, CYP1A2, still important, but uh, those genes are po highly polymorphic. Uh, polymorphic means that there are many gene mutations uh, that are found uh, in a population. Uh, we, we can get into a little bit race and ethnicity, but um, it, the, the frequency of a mutation in a given CYP2D6 gene will depend on uh, your your uh, ancestry. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so for example, uh, CYP2D6, uh, uh, there are known mutations that will cause you to be a poor metabolizer. Mm -hmm. So, and those, those, uh, uh, the, so you can estimate the prevalence, for example, of poor metabolizers uh, for CYP2D6, which is important for antidepressants and antipsychotics, it can be about 5 to 10% in the Caucasian population. And it can be about 1 to 2% in Asian populations. So you can see you can see different patterns based on ancestry. Yeah, I found that fascinating. And I'm thinking about, you know, what's going on here in the United States that may be different from elsewhere. And I haven't dug into this or researched it at all, but we are a melting pot, right? So we take, let's, let's remove, you know, race and ethnicity from this conversation and just talk about um, our ancestry of where we come from. My family came from the Ireland area, whereas Kelly, where's your family from? Germany, Germany, England, France, I'd say like all over. Yes. Yeah. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm married and my wife comes from uh, Asian uh, descent and now we have a child. So it makes me think about during the course of this melting pot here in the United States, what happens to a potential polymorphism that could be happening in, in terms of that CYP2D6 that we're not really studying and not really taking a close look at? Um, is there anything that, that you're aware of that you've looked into? Anything that you find interesting in terms of the, uh, the kind of like the, the marrying of uh, the human population into uh, more diverse, uh, more diversity, I, should, I guess I should ask. Well... I, I, I should caution, I haven't been in this field. I haven't uh, been in this field for a while. I, I looked back into it. I wrote that paper in 2011. And okay. uh, so that was a, a while back. And I've, uh, uh, I've, I, I still work with pharma uh, uh, as a medical writer and an analyst. Uh, 
um, not with any presence or antipsychotics, but uh, in other fields. But um, I've looked back, you know, since I've been back in touch with uh, with you and uh, and with David, I've looked at some of this again. But uh, I think it's there's a consensus that race and ethnicities, as you point out, not the thing to focus on because. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, it, it, you know, with mixed race backgrounds, you're going to get you're going to get um, combinations uh, of of uh, gene mutations um, that are going to be you know novel. They're going to be you know the the distinction between Caucasian populations and Asian populations is only going to blur over time, which just points out the importance of the genetic testing. One, I, that's that's kind of where I'm going, and I I can recall lots of people that have done some like ancestry.com, and they find out that their biological markers come from an area that they didn't even know they were from. So they may assume that they're from a certain area, and they could come from somewhere completely different. It's just over the course of migration and time, like it just gets so overwhelming that a simple test could really reveal a lot about the things that are important in terms of risks and what you should be concerned about. Yeah, absolutely. No, the, the, the gene testing is becoming more and more accepted back in the day. I mean, we were put out of business by, you know, various challenges. One of them was the global financial crisis. And one was FDA, you know, the FDA problems. Um, the other issue was uh, uh, physician education, uh, trying to change physician behavior is very, very very, very difficult, but uh, reimbursement is another one. But these things are, uh, I can, I can, uh, uh, I can report that you know there's been progress made, and mm-hmm. it's getting there. But it's, it's, you know, it's, it's a, it's a tough, it's a tough, uh, uh, you know, there's the hard yards involved. Yeah, yeah. I'm kind of a bottom line guy on on a lot of things, and my bottom line here is from this paper and from listening to you and the takeaway for our listeners is listen there for a percentage of the population, depending on your genetic lineage, your ancestry. Yep. You are at an increased risk of a potential severe adverse reaction to commonly prescribed psychiatric drugs. Can you tell us about this paper? And um, because the thing about this paper is it provides case studies Mm -hmm. And uh, if you can tell us a little bit about about your study and the paper that was published. Uh, okay. Uh, just very quickly, how did I get to Australia and how did I write that paper? Um, I was kind of at loose ends uh, back in 2011, uh, but I got back in touch with Yolande Lucier because she was one of the she was one of the clients of, of uh, Signature Genetics. And so we had been in touch previously, you know, over uh, Skype calls and, and, and conference calls and that kind of thing. So when I got uh, back in touch with her in, in 2011, she, uh, she mentioned that uh, she had a paper that she was, uh, that was submitted, uh, but uh, that it needed polishing and it needed, uh, it needed more, I guess more detail about the, the case studies that you mentioned um, and, and so on. So she was a forensic psychiatrist and uh, she was running into problems with the medical board uh, in New South Wales based on, um, I suppose, uh, some, some resistance uh, to the notion that uh, genes could help to 
determine dosing and drug selection and so on. Um, those were, those were uh, uh, I guess, at the, at the time they were seen as an outland, it was seen as a bit of an outlandish uh, notion. So, but she gene tested every one of the patients that was referred to her clinic and um, uh, they were, they were, um, they were, a, 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 you know, there was a, a wide, uh, wide uh, array of sort of different problems with the law and different problems with professional associations. Uh, Yolanda Lucier was, uh, 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 was, was very adamant about getting them all gene tested and then taking very, very detailed notes about what drugs they were on, what doses they were on, when the changes were made in the dosing, uh, even because she she learned about pharmacogenetics in working with uh, with with our service, she was also looking at things like, uh, uh, gosh, uh, natural supplements, herbs, and mm. different other uh, different uh, Saint John's wort and things like that. People use these things. Um, you know, they're off, off the shelf and, and, uh, in you know, sort of, uh, nutraceuticals or, or, uh, natural, natural therapies and so on. But she made notes of, about, uh, all, all of these and they interact with SIP450s as well. It's not just the manufactured drugs, it's, uh, food and, uh, herbal supplements and so on. So, when we went through her cases, there were 10 that were particularly uh, uh, obvious uh, that gene testing at the beginning would have, you know, prevented, I, I believe, some of the, some of the, uh, uh, some of the horrible tragedies that, 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 that occurred. And these are, these are, these are things that happened because um, me medics at, at the time were not informed, they were not uh, uh, aware, uh, they were, they were um, I mean, I'm not an expert in uh, psychiatry or antidepressant drugs or so on, but uh, you know, there's, there's, a, there's an obvious problem with the way that they're being prescribed and, and, the, and, the, and the frequency at which they're being prescribed. Uh, and this was the case in, uh, 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 this was the case in Australia, and probably, it's probably it's the case, I, I believe, just about everywhere, is that GPs are being, uh, GPs are prescribing a, a very, very powerful psychotropic drugs with uh, limited understanding of, of, of what they're, of the diagnosis and what they're, what they're, uh, what they're meant to do. Our service was meant to basically prevent some of this stuff from happening because the first rule is do no harm. So if you're going to prescribe a, a very, very powerful psychotropic agent, <laughs> the last thing you want to do is put somebody into uh, overdose territory. And that can happen quite e easily on standard dose if they are uh, uh, genetically, genetically impaired. It is part of a case series in review. And there were 10 subjects in this paper where eight had committed homicide and uh, more became extremely violent while on antidepressants. Uh, the, ten, the 10 representatives, there's, a, there's case histories involving serious violence, all presented in detail. Now, one of the things that is heartbreaking and that stands out, and you mentioned this, 
and about how overprescribed these drugs are in, in the first place that we have a, a real concern. Close to 80% of psychiatric drugs are being prescribed in our primary care settings here in the United States. So there is a real underestimation of the potential harms and really overvaluing any potential benefits. Now we are, um, we're blessed here to have David Carmichael who is one of those case studies. And uh, I'm going to allow him to tell the, the story. It, it's a tragedy, but I know he's trying to turn the events of his life into something positive and, and make a change. David, I want to welcome you to the program. Could you just, uh, I'm going to just leave it open for you to kind of just tell your story if you can. Well, I appreciate the opportunity. And it's always a difficult story to share. So I, I know I suffer no question from post-traumatic stress. You know, the, the challenging part with all of this is I knew nothing about the antidepressant when I started taking it a year before I wound up committing homicide. I took my son's life. But I went into the doctor. I was told I had a chemical imbalance in my brain and this would correct it. And I was going through a very stressful period. We went through a recession and I was coming out of it. I lost a very good job at an organization called Participation which promoted physical activity. They actually went to the federal government in Canada, Health Canada wanted $5 million just to keep the doors open. And we are a major focus on preventive health care. This is when Health Canada had a $200 billion budget for, and they turned us down. So we shut the doors. And I wound up having to transition the contract work. I was struggling. I leveraged every asset I could just to keep our family afloat until I basically broke down. It wasn't depression. It was distress. Like many people are going to be experiencing post-COVID when the economic fallout, the inflation, I mean, we can go on with what's going to happen. And they're going to go to their doctor. You said 80% of the time, Roger. And they're going to get prescribed, possibly, an antidepressant. So I'm speaking out and I set up a website, knowyourdrugs.org, which, which is a portal. And it really, it's modeled after the whole Nike, let's just do it campaign. It's it's a call to action, plus it's a portal for people to be able to know what questions to ask their doctor, how to research their drugs, and when to report adverse reactions. I never had that opportunity. I was on the drugs for eight months. I had side effects, which really bothered me, including sexual dysfunction issues. I was sweating at night. I went to every resource I could. Now, we're going back to 2003, 2004. We're trying to find out if, if I don't want to be on this drug, how do I get off? But the drug in the first place, I think, made me a bit manic. I, I didn't sleep much. And suddenly I went through a relapse. And I did have a full prescription from February of that year. It hadn't expired. I was going to talk to my doctor, but I put myself back on. And then I told him I did it. He said, fine. And I asked him, you know, at one point I said, what's the maximum dosage? It was 60 milligrams. But what I experienced, which again, there was nothing written about this at the time, is as soon as I put myself back on, I experienced akathisia which is a really agitation, irritation, and suicidal thoughts. My thought back then was, thank goodness I got on this drug just in time. I never even thought of it as an adverse drug reaction. And then I started to have murder-suicidal thoughts, and I came up with five delusions. My son had mild epilepsy. He was 11 years old. He was a big BMXer. We had the neighborhood playground in our backyard with a half pipe, a trampoline, a climbing wall, tetherball. I mean, it was the place to go for all the kids in the neighborhood. We spent, 
so Ian was very active and I was never concerned about his mild epilepsy. He never even had grand mal seizures. When it became delusional, and this is part of psychosis, you know, hallucinations, either hearing things or seeing things very delusional. And I've had to describe this fixed false beliefs. And, and forensic psychiatrists had assessed me because I was charged with first degree murder, which I'll get into that. But, you know, he, he said, what you do is you take an issue and you blow it out of proportion 30 times and it becomes a fixture in your mind. So I thought he had had permanent brain damage from his epilepsy. I thought he was in living hell because of this. I thought he was going to kill our daughter. I thought my wife was going to have a breakdown. And I thought it was going to hurt other kids. So in all of this, I said the best thing to do is to take his life. So I planned a murder-suicide. This is now... So I put myself back on the drug. After one week, I increased my dosage to 60 milligrams. A week later, I was planning to drown him and I at our family cottage. And we were going to go in a boat. I was going to put an anchor around us, and both of us were going to get in the water and not be able to come out. But I forgot my bathing suit, and I took that as a sign from God, you know, that I wasn't supposed to die just then. So the next week, I planned just his murder. I bought sleeping medication on the Tuesday. I broke open all the vials, put into a bottle. I went from there to planning what was going to happen on the weekend in a very calm, organized way. The more psychotic I became, the calmer I became. My wife thought I was getting better, not worse. So I planned a homicide for that weekend. Now we're talking all within three-week period after I put myself back on. And planned a wonderful trip out to an indoor skate park that Ian and I had been to before in the same hotel that I booked in. And I just said, you know, this is the best thing for Ian and I'm going to sacrifice my life basically. I'm going to go to prison for 25 years to do the best thing for Ian and the rest of my family. Now to your listeners, this is unbelievable to them as it is to me as I'm describing this to you. Like it, to me, I cannot believe I could ever be thinking in this way. So I took Ian away to a hotel room. We had his favorite foods for dinner. I looked at it as a, a last supper. Now, I, I'm not, I don't go to church. You know, I'm spiritual in a different way now. And sort of my purpose to try to educate others and set up knowyourdrugs.org is a huge part of it. But I really became very highly spiritual at the time. We watched his favorite movie. And then after the movie, I put all the sleeping medication from this one container into his orange juice, mixed it up and gave it to him. I was hoping he would fall asleep and not wake up. That didn't happen. He actually started to hallucinate. So we started to bounce around all the beds. We were having a great time. He was laughing. He was joking. And I said, I'm here with a purpose. I've, I've got to take his life. It's, you know, the best thing for him. So around three o'clock in the morning, I very calmly strangled him. And after I strangled him, I put him into the middle of the bed, put his arms across his chest, told him, I love you. I'm really going to miss you, but you're in a better place now. And I waited six hours before I called the London police, the city in Canada, and told them what I had done very calmly. And they came in six hours because I didn't want to interrupt the guests in the hotel. So at nine o'clock in the morning, I called after strangling him at three. They came, they arrested me, I was charged with first-degree murder. And, you know, there's no question I was psychotic, you know, in terms of my criminal trial. The Crown attorney, uh, or the prosecutor in the United States, but the Crown in Canada, 
and my defense lawyer, they agreed. They knew I was psychotic. So it came down to the issue, what caused the psychosis? Was it a mental illness? Diagnosed with psychotic depression? Or was it the drug? Now, for me, I've had to go ahead on my own and try to show that it was the drug. I've been off, off psychiatric medication since 2010. Last drug I was on was Effexor, and Dr. Lucire helped me being off that over eight months because I didn't know how to do it, and she helped me get off of it. Uh, and so it's been several years, and I've, I've dealt with much more stress than I ever dealt with before, and I haven't had another relapse. So to me, what I'm doing is supporting all the evidence that Chris Karate and, and Dr. Lucire put together to say there's something going on genetically that we don't understand, and it's not a chemical imbalance in the brain. That's a myth, and it's being proven as a myth. There's something going on that we need to better understand. And that's what happened. And I've been working ever since, again, trying to help people better understand, particularly the SSR antidepressants, to avoid and prevent tragedies like ours. Can't tell you how sorry we are for you know, everything that you went through. Um, and thank you for sharing that story. Um, I am interested, I'm sure our listeners are, are interested in um, how did you get to where you are now, where you are able to educate? Was there an appeal process? Um, what did happen in order for you to, to now be able to move on with your life? Well, I, with my lawyer, um, you know, we talked about my defense and we talked about, you know, no question I was psychotic. So we talked about my defense. Um, and if I was going to go after the drug, then the best I could have expected was a manslaughter conviction because in the criminal court of Canada at the time, and I don't think it's changed, if a substance-induced homicide or any type of violent behavior, you know, only focused on illegal drugs, sort of the heroin, cocaine, crack cocaine, and alcohol, there was no place for prescription drugs. So he said the best I could expect is a manslaughter conviction. So we went after what we call in Canada being not criminally responsible, which is your insanity defense in the United States. And again, there was a joint resolution between the Crown Attorney, and my lawyer that I was clearly psychotic. So we were successful at that. And I went, instead of to prison, I went to a mental health center, which used to be called the psychiatric hospital, but now they call them mental health centers. Each year, you have to progress to be able to get out of that system. And for some people, they're in there longer than it would be if they were in prison. In my case, I went in there in October 2005 after my trial. And I was an inpatient and I had some community privileges and I started to read more information about these drugs and what they can do. So in July 2006 was the first time I broke my silence and they sent out a media release and it got some, some good coverage, including from a current affairs show in Canada called CTVW5 that was aired in 2007. And I'm still a forensic inpatient and you know I, I spoke out to help prevent tragedies like ours and I've been speaking out ever since. But after four years, they finally realized that I'm not harmed to myself or to others. So I was actually given an absolute discharge is what they call it in 2009. And from that, I moved forward. And with Dr. Lucire's support and Chris's, I used the genetic testing as my basis for filing a lawsuit against GlaxoSmithKline, which was only dismissed a year ago based on a statute of limitations argument because I'd waited seven years. But I didn't think I had the evidence to file a lawsuit, you know, because they deny causality in every case, you know, because if it's not proven in a clinical trial, then forget about post-marketing experience. Those are just anecdotes, even though there's tens, hundreds of thousands of them 
They're just anecdotes. If you can't prove it through a clinical trial, then it's not science. David, um, I had read your Mad in America, um, I guess it would be an editorial, your story, um, and you provide uh, basically what you shared with us right now. And um, as we finished up that conversation, uh, Roger, Kelly, and I, about two weeks ago, we were talking about mass shootings and understanding what's going on. Can you tell me what you think, where your head's at, where your mind goes when you keep hearing stories about mass shootings here in the United States and elsewhere? Well, I've started to connect my behavior to mass shootings because even some of the leading psychiatrists in the world talk about it as impulsive behavior. It's not impulsive. You can't organize a mass shooting like they did in the Aurora Theater, mm-hmm. you know, with James Holmes in an impulsive state. You've got to plan this. So I've read that enough, again, from some of the top psychiatrists in the world that it's impulsive. And, and from my perspective, it's organized, which is what I did. There's probably some delusion uh, that's going on, maybe hallucination, something that makes them think that they're doing the right thing. In most cases, we don't hear about it. And a very high percentage are on SSR antidepressants. And that's now, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm sharing lived experience. I'm, I'm not a researcher. I'm not Chris or anybody, but David Healy, who is a pharmacologist and psychiatrist, has done quite a bit of work on looking at the percentage, and it's quite high. I'm not quite, you know, quite high. I've heard up to 80% of these shooters are on these drugs, which we don't hear about. Now, I, I, I can't validate that, but that's what I've heard. Mm-hmm. And if that's the case, I, you know, it, to me, it's horrendous that we never looked at that. You know, the toxicology, from my perspective, it should be mandatory to build prescription drugs into a toxicology test for violence, you know, for violent crimes. We shouldn't even think about it. We need to know, you know, but it's not happening. So I decided to write this paper and I connected myself to the school shooters because of my very calm, organized behavior. And I built quite a bit into it, including I was psychotic for two weeks afterwards. You know, my lawyer brought in a medical team to show that I was in a depression and I wasn't. There's something else happening. You know, I, I completed what they call the Minnesota Multiphasic Personality Inventory. And your listeners may know it as MMPI. In 45 minutes, I went bang, 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 bang. My IQ, I know it's higher than normal. You know, I am not a super intelligent person, but my IQ is really high. Something was happening in my brain that we don't understand with these drugs. So the psychiatrist, the forensic psychiatrist that came in to assess me couldn't say whether I was psychotic or not because I came across quite normally, thinking I had done the right thing. So all of that medical evidence was not brought up in my criminal trial, you know, including all the money we spent on gathering it. But I was still psychotic at the time. This happened after, you know, about 10 days. You know, it was when I was in suicide watch in isolation that I came out of my psychosis over about three days. And when I came out of my psychosis, I I literally, you know, and I'm hanging on to it thinking it was the right thing to do. And by day three, I knew it wasn't. I said, this doesn't make any sense anymore. I'm in here. My son is dead. My family is broken. I mean, I can't imagine what my wife and our daughter went through, you know, answered the door for the police. My daughter, her brother, was, she was 15 years old. I just turned 15. Her brother was dead. Her dad was charged with first-degree murder. I mean, how to destroy a family. David, I am curious about um, how your loved ones responded to you in the, in the aftermath of that event, friends, family. Roger, that's an incredible question. 
my family, surprise to a lot of people, have stood right by my side, my wife and daughter. I mean, there was no question in her mind. She was the one that saw I was different in my eyes. I was more abrupt on the drug than I was off of the drug. I mean, there's no question it was shock. You know, I can't imagine how her and our daughter, you know, Jillian felt, you know, when Toronto police came to the door and my daughter just turned 15 years old and she was told that her brother was dead and her dad had been charged with first degree murder. I mean, it's beyond comprehension. So, you know, my daughter, without my influence, has appeared with me on, on in some films. Letters from Generation RX was her start. It's a very good film, Breaking Some Ground. From there, we did television. She was with me on a BPC panorama film about the war theater shooter James Holmes. You only have the clip in there is in the middle, and it's our story, where I talk about that calm, organized behavior. We were on Dr. Oz's show together. We've been in uh, in Canada, our current affairs show, a very popular one is called W5. Uh, she was on that with me. Uh, you know, and we, there were two episodes of W5. One shortly after I broke my silence in 2006 and another one just recently, you know, in October 2021, almost 15 years later. And, you know, the whole follow-up was about our family. And it was the first time my wife has spoken up in 17 years. You know, we've all dealt with this our own way. But it's incredible to think about how my family has supported me. I'm doing a cross Canada tour now. It started on April 19th in Halifax. It finishes in a few days in Victoria on the 23rd of June in Victoria, British Columbia. And my wife has been on the tour with me. My daughter is now working in the United States. And before COVID, she wanted a puppy. She moved to the U.S. with a very high profile real estate company and we now have her puppy as well. So <laughs> sort of adopted a puppy and we've done this with a van and a trailer. And we've gone across the country with a focus on me having public discussions about drug safety, trying to raise some of the awareness and promote knowyourdrugs.org as a portal. You know, there's really nothing profound about it. It's a portal where people can get information on questions, on research and how to report adverse reactions. And it was developed in collaboration with, with an organization called RISK, rxisk.org. Uh, which was founded by Dr. David Healy and several other people. I'm curious, as you as you go around and um, educate everyone, have you met other individuals that have similar, I mean, similar stories? Obviously, it's a shocking story, but have similar stories where they they also went through um, where they were on these, these either antidepressants or drugs and um, have shown the same same thing that you're saying, this calmness, this kind of hyper focus on things. Have you met others? As I've gone across the country, I've met a lot of people. Some of them come to the public discussions. Others contact me before or after. And there are two real things that have come out. Those that have been on a similar type of drug as me, an SSRI antidepressant, a lot of them have experienced suicidal thoughts, suicidal ideation, not full-blown to you know, the point of, of committing homicide or suicide. You know, The warnings came out in 2004 in Canada, literally two months before I took Ian's life. The Health Canada in ask, you know, they say it's a GSK warning in consultation with or following discussions with Health Canada, which to me comes back to them having to comply, putting out a warning saying Paxil and other SSRI antidepressants can cause people to harm themselves and others. And I know that's very similar to the black box warning on these drugs in the United States. That's when the first warning came out, you know, and so to me, these people have an understanding that the suicidal thoughts may have been caused by the drug and they get interested in talking. I'll tell you what I'm really hearing is people who are on some of these psychiatric drugs and for a side effect, 
they often prescribe another drug and then that's that effect another drug till they're on a few or several psychiatric drugs or psychotropic drugs. They want to get off and they have no idea how to do it. So we're not going to replace the tour section on knowyourdrugs.org with the tapering section because medical doctors have never been taught how to taper people off the drugs. You know, it's not something the pharmaceutical sales reps bring into their meetings. So there's this huge void right now. How do you get people off safely? What else can they do? What type of support therapies do they need? And it's more than a doctor giving them a protocol. The withdrawal symptoms can be worse than when you first start the drug. This is a huge issue that I'm hearing right across Canada right now. It's a huge issue here in the United States, and we're seeing withdrawal-induced akathisia and suicidal reactions or responses. Your, your story is familiar to me as a, as a clinical psychologist here in the United States, and unfortunately, we're seeing it with more and more young people because that's what we're seeing. We're seeing young people... Uh, increased rates of suicidal ideation and self-injury after prescribing being prescribed psychiatric drugs. And if you look into the, into the data, there is even higher risk for, for young people under the age of 25. There's black box warnings for these SSRIs. What we're seeing is normal life events. And whether that is a, a divorce or a loss of a job, something that would be considered normal at another place and another time are leading people to go seek out support and help. And they're being, they're being told that this drug can cure an imbalance, that there's a, there's an illness. And from your story, it's a, it's caution to, to everyone out there that these drugs do induce an illness that in themselves. And there's such a marginalization in our society of people who are, who are struggling emotionally that you can get placed on the drug, have an adverse reaction, and then you view that from a medical side of things that that adverse reaction is part of the original mental illness. My question, David, for you, um, first of all, how old were you when you were first prescribed the drug? And did you have any history previously of any mental health symptoms or conditions? In 2003, when I was 45 years old, it's the first time I've taken any type of psychotropic or psychiatric drug you know i never had any issues i was heavily involved in physical activity and sport i went through i had a good career um you know went through graduate school my education's in high performance coaching physiology psychology of coaching and i really had no issues at all until i became distressed which nowadays people would say that's normal you know so that you know to deal with distress and in most cases is probably still drugged by the general practitioner or the family physician. And it was a year later when I was 46 years old that I took Ian's life. And, you know, it was interesting with the tour. I went right from Ontario to Calgary because they were showing a film as part of a medical conference called Medicating Normal. And it's a film that to me was amazing at describing, Roger, what you just described. Normal people be prescribed these drugs for so many different reasons. And we've got to definitely move back to saying, look, and, and not against prescription drugs. I'm about informed consent. Make sure you can make a decision, but it's your choice based on the best science available. You know, and so when I went there, you know, medicating normal, it was interesting enough that in Canada, we have a, a television station called Global News. And they did a very nice piece, Global News, about 
me and my Cross Canada too, but I also with Medicating Normal plus the conference. And I think even medical researchers are recognizing they need to start to collaborate more with consumers or the public or those that have lived experience because they're having a hard time making change within the system. So this conference brought in a public film and they invited the public to come and watch the screening. And the feedback was phenomenal. You know, there's tremendous interest and I really believe the medical community who have, I think in many ways operated in isolation are starting to recognize the importance of the voices that we're starting to hear. Yeah, it really does need to be a, a grassroots movement because to be honest with you, part of it's a, a, a media problem because I, for the life of me, I don't understand why a paper like this isn't more widely known or when it's published, it's not on the major news networks in the United States. It takes me back to my graduate school days when I read a paper from the New England Journal of, of Medicine that basically proclaimed that uh, SSRIs, antidepressants, were nothing more than placebos with side effects when you consider uh, all the trial data that they just did not publish. So in our country, the advertising dollars by the pharmaceutical companies really has a powerful impact on limiting the science from the general public. So the, the, the physicians are overwhelmed. If you talk to physicians, they're getting a lot of their information from the drug reps and their basically pharmaceutical marketing pamphlets. And we're not able to see this on our major news networks, which include ABC, NBC, CBS, CNN, Fox, the major ones where people are consuming news. This stuff is not going to be publicized. So it's going to have to be a grassroots effort. Well, just sharing my experience with the media, I was part of a mental health and crisis lecture tour in Australia, New Zealand back in early 2018. And this is really what prompted my cross-Canada tour, which was postponed three times because of COVID. I was going to start it earlier. I was there with medical researchers. You know, Robert Whitaker from Madden America was there and, you know, former investigative reporter of the Boston Globe has done so much in this area and, and trying to put medical research in the plain language. You know, Peter Gauci, there were all the medical researchers. And what I realized is Live Talk Radio was interested in talking about, you know, this particular lecture tour, but they were only interested in talking with me. They wanted the personal story. And I was introduced by one radio hostess. I got Killer Dad in the studio with me and mm. went on. And, you know, what I realized is, you know, it's that sort of sensationalism in the mainstream media. And my story is about as heinous as you can get. I mean, how could anybody ever kill his own child that he loved? doesn't make sense to your listeners until they start to dig deeper. So I decided I was going to do initially a North American tour because I know the problem is so prevalent in the United States and in Canada. Um, it got narrowed down to a cross-Canada tour. And my focus has been on engaging the mainstream media. I wasn't even concerned about how many people showed up at the public discussions. I might reach 100, 200 people through 10 or 12 or 15 events. But I was able to engage the mainstream media, CTVW5, which is Canada's current affairs show. They put an episode, and, and a lot of that was because of the, the tour. I had an interview with Real Life in Australia who focused on the tour and why I was doing it. So as much as I think, you know, I can only raise, reach so many people through the actual tour itself, those two shows alone reached a few million people. And maybe not in depth, but 
at least it got people listening to some of the issues and some of the important messages. And my main message now is go to knowyourdrugs.org. I've tried to put it in really plain language to people, but they also can get some information on what questions to ask your doctor, you know, how to research drug side effects to help you make an informed choice. And we need to report adverse drug reactions because right now, World Health Organizations estimate that less than 10% of them are reported. And when you look at that, 95% of adverse reactions reported by the pharmaceutical industry. So we really don't know a lot about the drugs even after they're on the market. You know, so we need to be, take a much more active role at getting people who've been on these drugs to report their adverse reactions. And, and the pharmaceutical companies, they're mandated to report them. So what's really going on with these drugs? We don't know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, knowyourdrugs.org. Remember that. Um, let's try to make sure that becomes more you know, widely known for, for patients. Here's my question for you, David. I, I, I would imagine it's a painful question for you. Is if you could go back, uh, you know, in the time machine right now, uh, back when you were 45 years old and struggling, what do you think uh, you really needed at that time? What, what could have been done to help you get through a difficult period of of that of uh, of your life? At 45 years of age, when I was distressed, what I needed was therapy. I needed to have someone to talk with that could help me put all this into perspective. You know, I was leveraging assets I was doing it on my own. I needed someone that understood what distress was and not quickly diagnose it as depression. And to be able to step back to say, how do you manage your finances? How do you deal with this during, you know, follow from a recession? You've lost your job. You need to pick up more contract work. How do you manage this as a family? And I didn't because I was told that a chemical imbalance in my brain. So I thought it was biological and I thought I had no choice. I didn't realize I had it. I thought it was genetic. I thought it goes back generations probably in, I just needed the drug. I was never told about any of the side effects, not one. So I thought I was doing the right thing. You know what? I, I honestly believe the, the promotion of that chemical imbalance idea is a crime against humanity because that still, to this day, is driving prescription drug use and leading people to, to believe that their emotional reactions to events that are part of living are somehow inappropriate or that there's something wrong with them for feeling what they're feeling. And when you say that you could have used, could have used therapy at that time, I, I think we've had a lot of conversations on this podcast about what is effective therapy. And it's around, it's around coping with difficult situations and adverse events. You know, that we always hear this, uh, this term throughout, uh, I don't even know who originally said it, but you know, just the, these ideas that everything in life is temporary. Um, and I th think you go through 45 years of your life and you've been able to cope pretty well and be really successful that if you had the, the right people in your life at that time who could have sat down with you and said, Hey, listen, you've got everything within you to be able to get through this time. It's temporary. Let's figure out what you, what you can do. It's going to, it's going to pass. You're going to figure it out. You're going to be okay. And that in itself would have been life-saving instead of going into a doctor who medicalizes what you're feeling out of context and tells you that there's something wrong with your brain and here's a drug that can correct it. Unfortunately, um, this type of narrative is, it's not decreasing. You know, you, we would think that we'd have greater education on this and the science would be clear, but we have generations that are unfortunately impacted and it's becoming younger and younger. 
Yeah, there's no doubt. Actually, in the last two weeks ago, I was watching now, but they've changed it. They've changed it a bit. It says it could be caused by a chemical imbalance. But you know, but that's still are you going talking out about it. Are you talking about, about a commercial? Yeah, commercial, a pharmaceutical that was on, yeah. drug commercial. Absolutely. Yeah. No, I was just going to say I'm going to go back and answer another message I've heard on the tour. When I've been talking with families on this cross Canada tour, I realized something. I mean, for the last few years, I've always thought that the pharmaceutical industry has really turned our healthcare system to a sickness care system. I mean, they want people on drugs for life. I mean, that's how they make their money. That's how shareholders profit. But I've added a new word into this, and it's really a word that really is making me think pretty deep about just how far this problem goes. I would say, you know, the pharmaceutical industry has turned the healthcare system into a debilitating sickness care system. So not only does it affect that individual, I mean, think about it. You're talking about going younger and younger. So at 12 years of age or eight years of age, nine years of age, you've told you got this biological condition. You're going to have it for life. You have to cope. What does that do to your core self-esteem or your feelings of self-worth? How do you build up the confidence to be able to build a career and to be able to move forward in life? And not only does it affect you, it affects your whole family. I heard families that don't know what to do with their children. The children are struggling. They're having a hard time because they've been told by the doctor that you've got bipolar disorder and it's something you're going to have to learn how to live with. You know, so to me, this goes well beyond just the economics. We're talking about society that is going to go through um, a major, you know, well, it's debilitating. There's no other way to describe it economically. There's no way this is going to affect the economy. It's going to affect families. And I think we're headed to some type of destruction caused by the pharmaceutical industry. Um. I'd like to just add for all of our listeners, we've discussed a lot of things during this uh, this podcast episode, including the, the research studies and all the links to uh, uh, to, to David's uh, resources and Chris's resources. I'm going to include those all in the show summary. So if, as you're listening to this, please always remember to scroll down and look at our episode notes. We'll include links to all this information so you can do the research for, research for yourself because we are really talking about informed consent and being aware and, uh, and I guess my advice for anybody would be to investigate whether or not a pharmacogenetic genetic test can be done uh, with your local physician or anyone who would be in that area. I was trying to do some research to see if there's any direct to con- consumer. If I'm able to find something, I'll include a resource there. And uh, just become aware if you're carrying some type of genetic variant that could really affect it's, anything. I don't even want to limit to that. I think we're just scratching the surface on the science here because I don't I don't want to assume and I don't want to have the conversation that these drugs are why well, are, are very highly effective for some people and just not others because they have a a a, a specific gene. That's not that's not the science and I don't want to communicate that message. Um, what I do want to communicate the message to people who are listening is understand that the drugs you are on can be contributing or not the sole reason for some of your symptoms and, and how much you're suffering. The idea that let's just increase the dose or let's just add another one is going to take you down to a road to health is one that we have to learn from others who have gone through that hell before. And this is a cautionary tale. But I do not want to communicate to everyone out there that we have these safe and effective drugs unless you have some biological variant. So let's not do that. The point I'm making is that it's not just SSRIs. It's any medication if you have the the metabolizing uh, issue. 
Um, and that's something that people should be aware of. If it's a, a test you can take for $200, why not take the test and just know more about your life? It doesn't even have to do with SSRIs or anything. It's just everything. Am I correct in that, uh, Chris? I, I agree with Roger uh, in the sense that the, the idea is not to take these gene tests and turn them into a marketing tool for the, for the fact that, uh, uh, you know, for, for, for a wider, <laughs> for wider prescription of antidepressants, that's just not, uh, that's not, that was never the goal when, when I was working in this field. And uh, a lot of people that I know and respect would be horrified at that idea. Uh, the, the, but, the, but the idea is, is uh, and I'll, I'll reiterate the point, is to take control of, uh, of, of uh, uh, take control and, 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 and make sure that you are informed and make sure that you are educated and that if you are on a drug, uh, it, it could be that it, 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 does, it does work. But uh, if, you're, if you're on a drug and you shouldn't be because of your genetic, uh, because of your genetic mutations, uh, then it's a safety issue and it's, an it's a protecting yourself against adversity issue. I know the FDA is not crazy about direct-to-consumer genetic testing, but uh, it's, that's, that's, I guess that's another debate, but um, I'm, I'm definitely, we see what's going on now with the pandemic and with the vaccines. It's much, much, it's very important to, to, for people to inform themselves and to make informed uh, decisions because a lot of this information uh, is in the hands of vested interests that do not have our safety as their first concern. Yeah, and I would add, to it, it doesn't matter what, what it is, whether it's a vaccine or whether it's a drug, the messages that are coming out of the federal government and the messages that are coming out of the media are as if everyone's the same. You know, it's safe and it's efficacious for human beings. And the whole personalized medicine movement suggests that everyone is different. Everyone That's, is yes. diverse. Yes, yes, and yes. Don't, don't assume that your federal government is going to protect you. Take control of your own health and your own well-being. And as far as this podcast, we need to get, get people to share it. You know, this, our, the Radically Genuine podcast is obviously growing at a pretty vast rate. Um, we're now in the top 5% of global downloads this message and the people that we bring on is, is certainly resonating with a lot of people globally. But these conversations and hearing these stories, they have to be shared. Like you have to be able to share this story to other people because let's face it, there's, there's still, most people are, are, are brainwashed in a lot of ways. You grow up in a prescription drug culture. The messages are just constantly sent to you via media and our healthcare system has become one that is putting, you know, bandages on gaping wounds. You know, David says it best, they're creating customers for life. It's not about restoring health. It's about symptom management. And this is another evidence, more evidence of just that symptom management. But understand these drugs cause great, great harm. I'm going to just conclude. I want to thank uh, both Chris and, and David for coming on on the podcast. But I want to let you guys have the final word. Uh, David, is there anything that you'd like to conclude with? Uh, if you want people to get in, in touch with you or your organization, how can people find you? Well, the organization is knowyourdrugs.org. That's the website. The actual organization is Canadians for Vanessa's Law, which is a 
new law, which you know received royal assent in Canada in 2014. So if people can go to knowyourdrugs.org, it will help them hopefully make an informed choice. That's the mandate of the charitable organization, Canadians for Vanessa's Law. It's, it's helping Canadians make informed choices about prescription drug use. We've also had a lot of people from other countries who have visited the website because it really is. And, and the final comment I'd like to make, you know, it's hard for me to thank you for having me on your podcast. That's, you know, I, Thanking you for letting me share my story again, which is very painful. I, I thank you for educating the public and all that you do. And if I can be a factor in that and be helpful, that's great. Because one of the reasons that I'm speaking out, you know, my purpose and it's helped me heal. And it is really for Ian. And I was out of the system literally in four years in Canada based on an insanity defense or an NCR not currently responsible. People that I know that have experienced what I experienced in the, in the United States are usually either incarcerated for life, institutionalized, or dead. So as a Canadian, my efforts are global. Thank you. Chris, any final statements? Uh, well, it's, uh, it's an honor to be on here with, uh, with you and uh, with your audience and uh, with David. Um, and... I'd just like to reiterate, I think that uh, the main message is you take responsibility for your own, uh, uh, for your own information. And, and, and it, it's, it, uh, we live in a world where you have to protect yourself and uh, you have to take, get all of the information that's necessary to, for, for those steps. I guess uh, one message that I wanted uh, to emphasize is that uh, genetic testing is, is a lot more available uh, than it was when I was working in it uh, 15 years ago. Um, and there are uh, tests uh, that you can order as a consumer, and there are also uh, reimbursements. There's also uh, reimbursement is opening up, uh, and doctors are becoming more and more open to, um, uh, to using this kind of information. It's in clinical guidelines uh, from you know, uh, organizations around the world, so it's medically, uh, it has more medical credibility than it did let's say 15 years ago. So um, uh, that's, that's my final, that's my final message. Here. Gentlemen, I want to thank you both. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Listening to a podcast may be therapeutic, but it is not therapy. Always seek the advice of your mental health professional. If you are in a crisis or you think you have an emergency, call your doctor or 911. If you are considering suicide, call 1-800-273-TALK to speak with a skilled, trained counselor. If you found this podcast interesting, please share it with a friend, subscribe through your podcast app, and engage with us through our social channels. And if you are concerned about a friend or family member, reach out. The six magic words... I was just thinking about you may make their day. Thank you for listening.